Hello and welcome to Actuarial People with myself, James Turner. I'm excited to be launching a brand new podcast where each week I'll be speaking with the UK actuary. My aim is to give you, the listener, greater insight into the people behind the profession and their personal career journeys. So we'll cover things like why and how they became an actuary, what they do on a day-to-day basis, how they balance work and study with life, any specialisms they've developed, and how their role has evolved over time. So whether you're an actuary yourself, or you're aspiring to become one in the future, welcome and enjoy. Please welcome to Actuarial People, Ji Hyang Lee. James, it's really great to, um, to join the podcast and thank you very much for, for having me. No, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. It's, uh, I guess, some of the people I had previous relationships with and, and knew them a bit, but it's actually really exciting to sit down with someone who I haven't had so much interaction with and, and find out about your journey. So so thank you. Um, I wondered if you could start by just giving the listeners an overview of who you are, what you do today, and then we'll go back to the beginning and, and work forwards. So I'm a pensions actuary. Um, I work primarily um, to advise trustees, although I have done a little bit of corporate work um, here and there. I think I've got around 15 or 16 years um, of experience. Um, I've worked across several different companies. Um, currently, I'm working for Aon. Fantastic. So I know you're expecting this question because you said beforehand, um, <laughs> could you cast your mind back to when you first realised that actuaries existed? Yeah, so um, I was thinking about this quite a lot because it's, um, it's, I think my journey to becoming an actuary is perhaps a bit non-standard. Um, so I spent quite a few years at university doing research, um, doing mathematical research. And um, I think my intention had always been that I wanted to be a research academic. Um, and it became clear over time that it, it just wasn't for me. There were aspects of it that I did really enjoy, but there was too much that just, just wasn't a good fit for me. So um, I, I really quite distinctly remember this um, when... Um, I was sort of feeling quite forlorn, I suppose, because I didn't really know what it was that I wanted to do or um, where I was going. Um, so I went down to our student careers service and they gave me, so this was a long enough time ago that they gave me a big stack of paper and things to read to take away. And um, one of the things they gave me was the Hobson's Graduate Career Directory. Um, some people might remember this. This one had a very violently pink cover. I remember that quite vividly. <laughs> and um, I just sort of sat down and started working through um, for, in alphabetical order. So, you know, accountant didn't think that would be a particularly good fit for me turned the page actuary and I'll confess at this point I had never heard of an actuary or what it was um and read the description and thought that sounds quite interesting um and then spent probably a couple of weeks or so just doing a little bit of research on the sort of all of the obvious places and trying to understand a little bit about what the um what it involved and um I think the more I read about it, the more I thought, this sounds like it'll be a good fit for me, um, because it's obviously a very technical mathematical subject, we, we all know that. Um, but the things I found interesting about it throughout was this emphasis on the importance of communication, and in particular this phrase that sort of stuck in my mind, which was um, a key skill for actuaries is being able to explain the complex things simply. And I thought, well, one of the things that I actually had enjoyed about doing research was exactly that because I'd had the opportunity to do some teaching and that aspect of it being able to explain com- complex concepts in a simple way um, was one of the things I really liked doing so the more I thought about it the more it just seemed like um, a natural fit or at least the most natural fit that I've been able to find um, to date and then um, I-, I went about things in a way which was probably very characteristic of me at that stage in my life which was to say quite naive quite driven <laughs> <laughs> So did the usual thing of applying as a graduate um, and was lucky enough um, to be accepted to my first choice company um, as a graduate. And that's that was that was the start of everything. You got a job with your first choice company. Um, why was it your first choice and how how wide did you spread the net at that point? I think it spread the net um, pretty widely at that point. I think I'd applied to almost, um, uh, sort of going back to the perhaps slightly naive point, I think I'd applied to almost every actuarial company that was in Glasgow um, at that stage. <laughs> And um, I think the one that particularly interested me about this one was um, they had an emphasis on the sort of the training and development for their graduates. And they really talked a lot um, out of all of the web pages and things and all the research that I did. They were the ones which seemed to be most centred around helping to support graduates through the exam process, um, which at that point in time was certainly a really big, big question in my mind. Mm-hmm. And how how much did you understand what an actuary did on a day-to-day basis because I think these days there's arguably limited information if you just go to a couple of websites and you just get a sentence or two here mm. or there but did, did you have a better understanding or 
I no, not particularly. Um, I think this is um, this is one of the things that um, I think these days you can probably glean some information, but certainly at the time when I was looking, which was quite a long time ago, there wasn't much at all. So there were some very helpful little case studies, I think, on the IFA website, which said, this is what I do as a graduate trainee. Um, and I think some companies, some of the slightly more forward thinking companies also had um, a day in the life of things um, on their website. So you could get a sense of what students would do. But all of the sort of the description of the technical work that they were doing, like calculus and transfer values or valuations or things like that, I obviously had no real sense of, of what that might mean. Yeah. So so you started your, your first role how, do you remember the first few weeks, first few months? Um, yes, I remember being introduced to transfer values and just wondering what on earth probably this <laughs> goes through the mind of most people when they um, when they first come across this. Um, essentially coming across the concept of what actuarial mathematics actually means um, and the basics behind all of the, all of the technical things that we do. Um, I think it's fair to say that certainly for the first few months, it was it was a big culture shock because I had gone from doing research mathematics, which is a very different thing, um, to doing something which was completely different. All of the things like actually understanding how to work in a business setting. Again, I'd worked in a university for quite some time, which is a very relaxed environment. Mm. So all of these things like dress codes, all of this sort of stuff, all of this was quite new to me. Um, so it was a big, there's no question, it was a big culture shock. Um, and it, it took me a little while, I think, to, to settle down and to just find how I would inhabit that um, and to try to do it in a way which obviously you have to conform to the appropriate um, to the appropriate requirements, but which didn't necessarily, like you could put it, um, suppress my own personality too far. Well, so how, how did you go about that? Could you tell us more about, yeah, you sort of finding your own... Yeah, um, I think it took me some time. Um, I don't think it was something that happened quickly and it was a case of... Um, you know, the obvious thing that you do is you look for role models in the people around you um, and you can see the people who are really good and you try to emulate them. And then perhaps you realise after a period of time that you just don't work like that, perhaps, um, that the way that you think is slightly different or the way that you would prefer to communicate is different. And so it's a process of essentially, I suppose it's about self-awareness, isn't it? It's about understanding your own preferred way of doing things um, and working out what works for you. Um, I think I was, I've been fortunate over sort of several companies I've worked for, actually, that I've been given the space to do that, um, because it certainly wasn't something that I figured out in the first few months or even in the first few years, perhaps. I would say it probably took me about four or five years to get to the point where I was comfortable understanding that this was my way of doing things and it might necessarily be slight, might not necessarily be quite the same as everybody else's, but it was still fine. Um, and it's about having the confidence to present yourself in that way and the confidence to say, actually, do you mind if we do this this way? I learn better doing it this way. This particular approach doesn't work for me. Those kinds of things. Yeah. Okay. How did you find the exams? Really tough. Really tough. Um, so I think it's, um, I'm quite open about the fact that I really struggled um, with the early series of exams. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, there's there's one particular individual who I was I was very fortunate to work with across two companies who was my boss at both times. And um, I think it's, true to say that without him and without his encouragement, I would not have qualified as an actuary um, because he had some belief in me, which at that point I really didn't have in myself. Um, so I, I really struggled with the first, with the early tier exams. So the old CTs and um, I just found them incredibly hard. And it was only when somebody said to me, um, this was an absolute light bulb moment for me. Somebody said to me, how is your time management in exams? Uh, to which I said, well, what do you mean? And they were like, you, you actually have to time it according to the marks in the question that was a light bulb moment from that point onwards I, I think I passed everything first time round but it was that single phrase um and that single realization that made the difference for me um but until until somebody said that to me um and until I sort of adapted that into my exam technique um I really struggled with them um after that it was plain sailing is too strong a word but it was much more straightforward so it wasn't so much the, the concepts and the content it was more putting it into effect on on exam day when you're actually sitting there yeah yes it was all it was all to do with exam technique and i have a suspicion that um having spent quite a long time doing research mathematics which is very very different um and is assessed in a way which is completely different i think that was probably a contributing factor to just not having particularly good exam technique at that point do you, do you see other people that have you helped other people since that have had the same issue is it a common thing 
Um, I would like to think so. I mean, I've I've mentored a lot of students, and I think um, every single student probably went through this kind of that I've mentored went through this sort of rite of passage with me, which would be like I would say exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like really think about your time management. It's such a critical part of it. Um, has it made any difference to them? I don't know. I would like to think it has, um, or at least that if I told it to them early enough that they didn't then go ahead and make the same mistake um, that I made, which was just to not think about it, which with hindsight, it's obviously quite, it wasn't a sensible thing to do. Um, but I think there's also um, a lot of the students that I, um, I've seen and worked with, certainly over the past few years, are just um, exceptionally bright and very good at passing exams. And their exam technique um, is honed in a way that certainly mine certainly wasn't. Yeah mentoring has come up in pretty much every conversation I've had and 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 it's come up already in in this one um I guess in my day job as a recruiter not not I don't know if any conversations talk about mentoring it's more about what they've done and, and what they want to do but um it seems to me that it's a really important part whether that's it's probably in every industry but particularly in in consulting and sort of navigating your career What's your experience been? It sounds as though you've mentored quite a few people. Have you been on both sides of it and had and sought out mentors yourself as well? Hi guys, we'll get straight back to the conversation in a second. Just a quick reminder that when I'm not recording podcasts, I specialise in helping pensions actuaries with their career moves. And I'd love to help you when the time comes to explore your options. I work with people at all levels, whether you have a couple of years experience through to senior positions. My approach is different to most recruiters. I started my own business last year and work alone, which means I have zero pressure to hit targets and can just focus on giving the best possible help and advice. So whether you're thinking of making a move now or would just like to understand your options for the future, please get in touch via LinkedIn or email james at turnerperkins.com. Back to the show. So so I've mentored um, a couple of people. Um, There is one in particular who I won't name, but who's absolutely exceptional and I'm extremely proud to be involved with. I mean, the the, the pupil in that instance has very far surpassed the teacher, I think. Um, And on a personal level, um, as a mentee, I have been really fortunate um, with some of the people that I've worked with. Um, so I kind of mentioned um, a previous boss who I've worked with in two companies, um, both at Jordan Lloyd-Thompson, then, then again at Mercer. Um, and um, that individual is absolutely responsible, first of all, for the fact that I'm an actuary, and secondly, very much for the kind of actuary um, that I am. So um, the mentoring from that person was, um, yeah, was formative for me. Um, but I think there are a couple of other people as well. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about a mentor is that um, is how do you go about seeking one out mm. in a way that you know allows you to actually get full benefit of it? And um, I find it very interesting that the kind of people you tend to seek out are people who you naturally feel comfortable with, obviously. So they tend to be people who reflect your personality. And then I suppose the challenge to yourself is, well, is that always quite right? Um, because you obviously want somebody who you're going to get on with on a personal level, but at the same time, sometimes mentoring is about putting you in an uncomfortable position. Um, And it can be actually quite important, I think, to find a mentor who's willing to do that for you. And so I've been very fortunate um, that they have been able to find mentors with whom I actually got on well and communicated well on a personal level, but equally who are willing to do that and who are willing to kindly and with love um, put me in a, that kind of uncomfortable position because that borderline uncomfortable position, that sort of stretch position is where a lot of really valuable learning can come about. So um, yes, I think there are a couple of people in particular, um, certainly at my last company, um, Barnett Waddingham, who um, just did that for me in an absolutely outstanding way. Yeah. Do most companies have a mentoring sort of structure is it encouraged or or do people have to sort of sort it out themselves for a better want of a better phrase i've always asked for it um i think um some companies i've worked for have had really good um upfront mentoring programs and in fact um some really excellent mentoring programs so um essentially the way they look at it the way one company in particular looked at it was um you don't need to have a mentor for a long period. Of course, you can if you wish, but it can be for quite a short period and it can be to help you in a specific thing. So it was almost like they had a bank of mentors um, with a little description of the kind of things that they could do and support you in. And you would go and have a look at it and almost pick who you felt um, was was best for you. 
Um, I think it was something which is generally I think every company I've worked for, it's been encouraged, um, but the onus has also been on the individual to request it. Um, unless it's, um, I, I think certainly in my situation, I've always been the one to stick my hand up and say, actually, that would be really good if um, if you'd agree to mentor me. But every time I've asked, um, people have offered. So Nice. In terms of, so you, you were at uh, your first company for about two years and then you, you made a change. Mm-hmm. Can you remember sort of what it was that, that sort of instigated that change? Why you why you started thinking, actually, maybe I need to, to look at something different? Yeah, I think it was just, it was simply just to broaden um, the consultancy experience I was getting because I was part of quite large teams. And I think, um, you know, as, as a junior graduate, you don't get a great deal of plant contact, you're some way down the food chain, all of these sorts of things. And um, I think my feeling was one of the reasons why I came into this job was I want to communicate with clients. Um, I want to mm. go out and be talking to clients. And so I, I thought, well, actually, maybe it makes sense then to, um, to move to a company which has a different structure, smaller teams, smaller clients. Um, and that is what, what prompted um, that particular move. Okay. And again, did, did you sort of pick two or three companies that you thought might be right and explore them? Or, or did you have a, a pretty clear idea of where you wanted to go? Um, I think I had a, I think I had a short list of two or three um, and then I actually ended up working for the company that um, I really liked the people who interviewed me um, and I really liked the team and the individuals involved in the team and so just thought yeah okay this is a really good fit for me on a personal level. Yeah and then how, how was it when you went there was it as expected in terms of getting more client contact at an early stage? It, yes, it was. So um, definitely more client contact, um, definitely more responsibility, um, a very sort of different working structure because it was a smaller team. Um, it, yes, it, it was it, it was a really good place to work, as a matter of fact. I, I enjoyed it. And if, if people are listening to this who are still at university, perhaps they're, they're, they're planning on becoming an actuary, but maybe they're struggling to know what it actually looks like. Um, could you give a feel for what the difference is between the sort of stuff you're likely to be involved with in the first year or two and then what it looks like when you are a bit more senior is it just about client contact or are there other elements that that people can look forward to the answer is it just it depends enormously um, because even within pensions now um, there are so many different roles available i mean just the proliferation of different types of specialist teams um so the way that it looked when when I was a graduate is certainly not at all how it's going to look now. But um, having said that, I suppose there still would be um, common aspects. I think that the key thing in the first couple of years is you're just getting your technical skills up to scratch. So the majority of what you're doing um, is probably going to be very calculations focused, very technically focused, perhaps a lot of transfer values, um, learning how to use all of the different actuarial systems, things, things like that. And then as you start to expand out and you start to develop more client contact, then obviously you may actually talk to clients. You might even go out and meet them rather than just talking to them on the phone. You might also be involved much more in preparing written communications, um, which is such an important part of being an actuary. Um, And also you start to get involved rather than just the doing, um, you start to get involved in thinking about, well, what does it mean? Um, What does it mean for the client? What, how am I going to explain it to this client? what information do they actually need in that situation to make a decision which is appropriate for them? And then you have to start thinking about all of the different contexts in terms of client relationship with the company, how all of this fits together with all of the regulation. So I suppose it's it become, it's a role which becomes less and less technical if you want it to. But then again, there are so many opportunities these days to get involved in very specialist technical things that if the technical stuff interests mm. you, you absolutely could make a career out of it. If you want to be a consulting actuary, which is how I would describe myself, um, then over time, yes, the, the amount of technical work that you do, the amount of spreadsheet contact that you have um, becomes less and less. And certainly um, there can be days or even... I think I think my record was two weeks when I didn't touch a calculator. Um, I didn't even add two <laughs> numbers together. It was all thinking about it was all thinking about communications or how I was going to present something at a client meeting um, or discuss it with colleagues. Um, how how all of this fit together in terms of the scheme's investments, um, the covenant, um, and and the valuation results. Yeah, and when when you um, first started consulting, speaking with clients, going out to meetings. Did it sort of, you said at the start that you, you love the idea of explaining complicated things to, in, in more simple way. Did it come naturally to you or was there another learning curve in terms of actually what's the right language to use here? What is their level of knowledge? How do I actually get this across? How, how's that journey? 
So that's an interesting one because um, I think I think there were probably two learning curves. Um, and the first one was I think I always had the ability to explain the complex things simply. I think what I didn't have at that point was the consulting skill to to read the room and to tailor that appropriately to the client. So you're not going to go into a trustee meeting, which is, let's say, um, you've got the finance director and the HR director as there as trustees. You're not going to use the same language or present that in the same way as if you would if with your room is full of member nominated trustees um, who have a different kind of background. You have to be very conscious of this and, and adapt to that. So I think that was one big learning curve for me, understanding how to read the room, um, how to read people's body language and how to make sure that what I was saying was actually fitting what they needed. Um, the second one was self-confidence. Um, because you know you're put into um, you're put into this situation where you're looked on as an expert, um, and the the anxiety that that can produce <laughs> can be quite significant. And the learning curve that I had was basically about actually realizing and building the experience over time to demonstrate that yes, I can do this. Um, but that was also quite a significant learning curve, just developing the confidence um, to go into a meeting and to have to have the confidence to say actually I don't know. Um, and to understand that saying, actually, I don't know, is sometimes it's fine. Um, you don't always have to have um, every single every single answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at this point, you're, you're in your second company three or four years in. Are you thinking long term around where you want to be? Do I want to be a ski metry? Do I want to specialise in, in one area or another? Or are you just sort of taking each day as it comes still? Actually, the latter, to be honest, because um, I was I was genuinely enjoying the work. Um, it was interesting and it was challenging. Um, I was developing um, good skills um, and was sort of really felt that I was, um, I think probably um, at the back of my mind, there was a thought that at some point, yes, um, I'm going to need to make a decision about whether I want to be a ski matry um, or perhaps whether I just want to stay at kind of accounting level, signatory level. Um, so yes, that was certainly at the back of my mind. And at this stage, I was also to be quite honest, not sure if I was ever going to manage to qualify because this was a stage when I was really struggling um, with exams and finding that very difficult. Mm. Um, so I think it probably was more one day at a time, actually enjoying work, um, just keeping on um, building skills, I suppose. Yeah. And then if you, if we roll forward a bit, so then you joined a, a much bigger consultancy. Mm. What was the thought process there? So joining Mercer, um, I actually joined Mercer because my old boss at Jordan Lloyd Thompson had joined Mercer and um, invited me to join him, basically, um, which I was delighted to do because I had I'd really enjoyed working with him. So I mentioned I really enjoyed working at Jordan Lloyd Thompson. Um, so yes, when he asked if I was interested in joining, it was, um, it, yeah, it was quite it was actually quite an easy decision. <laughs> yeah. And then how... I mean, we don't need to go through every single company, but how did you find it there? Was it very different to what you were doing before? I imagine bigger schemes and more complex things or? Um, so in some ways it was, um, so I, I joined an interesting team because it was a team which um, specialised in small schemes. So in some sense, it actually continued um, with the existing skill set that I already had, but within the context of a large company. Um, so that was very interesting um, because, you know, you find out about all of the other kind of work that was going on. Um, and then it was quite interesting to see all of the things which a large company might consider in the intellectual capital that it has. How can you use that and how can you effectively translate that down um, into what you're doing for your own clients? Um, but certainly working at that company was um, it was where I, I suppose it's where I learned my trade as an actuary, um, as a sort of as, as a competent technical actuary. That's the point. Cause that's the company where I qualified as well. That is the point where I really established, I suppose, I don't know what you want to call it. Do you want to call it maybe something like the, the actuarial spidey sense? Um, <laughs> that's where you build all of the skills and experience to to look at a number and go, yeah, that number's probably wrong, but I can't really explain why. Uh, that was that company was where I built that because I got so much experience in doing so many different types of of technical work. Having worked for a few different consultancies, are they different from each other? How different? What are the differences? Or is it is it does it just depend where you sit and the actual people that you've you've got around you in each one? So I, I think this is this is a really interesting question, and because I think every consultancy I've worked for has been really different, um, and, um, and some of it it's definitely attributable to obviously different personalities, different ways of doing things, and and things like that. But um, to me, um, I think every company I've worked for does have a different company culture, um, and 
culture is a thing which is it is quite nebulous it's quite hard to sort of definitively describe what, what that might be um there is absolutely also an aspect of course it, it does depend where you sit in the team and the kind of work you're doing that that clearly has an impact on that um i think they are different and um i think the differences come about um how best to describe it so it's absolutely the case that in some consultancies, especially the larger ones, perhaps, um, inevitably, because there are so many employees, you you are part of a greater number. Um, so not everybody is going to know who you are, depending on the way that they work. So if they work which in a way which is siloed to office, then it might be the case that you never meet and never and never have anything to do with anybody in any of the other offices. Um, but equally, there are also large consultancies which don't work in that way at all um, and which work in a way which is much more distributed. So even though people are geographically separate, you actually all still are one team. Um, mm. So I think that's that's one of the very big differences that I've come across um, in different consultancies, actually. Um, the way in which um, you're either part of your team and your client team might be distributed all over the place or your team which is your local office, it's a very different experience whether your contact is primarily with somebody remotely or whether um, it's it's in person. And then there are also things like, um, even just things like actuarial house view, I think there are differences. Um, I mean, obviously there is a quite a really strong industry consensus about certain things, but there are differences. And I find some of the differences quite interesting. Very different ways, obviously, of systems working, um, different peer review processes, and it all adds up to just a different, a different feel um, and a different, a different experience when you work there. Um, and a lot of about it is is finding the. All of these have their own pluses and minuses and disadvantages and advantages and things. And it's about finding the group of those which which fits you well. Do you think is to what extent can you find out some of those things before you join? versus you don't know, can't know until you're actually there? Mm. Um, there's some of it I think you, you can only find out when you actually um, when you actually sit down and log on for the first time. Um, and inevitably, that's going to be the case around working practices and things. Um, but so much of culture is driven by people. Um, and I think you can get a sense of what the culture is going to be like by meeting people. Um, so certainly um every company um which i've joined um i've always asked to meet as many of the team as i reasonably can just because you want to get a sense of who it is that you're going to be working with um and it was that process that led me to join Jordan lloyd thompson in particular um and it's certainly been the process which has led me to join a couple of other companies since just this sense that there are really good people here um that they're going to be good to work with that you can learn from them and that they operate in a way which is sort of which fits for me so so if if we talk about the the period where you're you're at Mercer you're qualified now when did you qualify is it um could I say I think it was I think 2016 okay it was. 2015 or 2016 yeah so you qualified um at Mercer what what happened when you qualified is that sort of I mean how did you feel having finally um got your got your final pass um in the bag and does that sort of change things overnight in terms of your role or does it make you sort of think about things differently in terms of where you go from there? Um, so I think, well, I don't know about everybody else, but certainly the the biggest overriding emotion I had when I qualified was just this absolute sense of relief because it had been quite a long time coming. Um, I think it was just, just I, I don't ever really remember feeling so relieved about something and just this, it really does feel like a weight that's lifted off you and you don't realise how heavy it is until, uh, until it goes. Um, so... I think probably consistently with the experience I've had um, in other companies, it doesn't have a magical change on your role overnight. It obviously confers certain rights if you wish to take them, but most companies have a process which you would need to go through before there can actually be any significant change in responsibility, which is essentially to do with signatory status. Um, so yes, it immediately prompts certain discussions along the lines of, um, so, you know, well, we need to put a plan in place, someone to start signing out work, what kind of work would be appropriate, what kind of clients does it need to change, do I need to change client allocations, all of these sorts of things. Um, I don't think there was ever any sort of enormous change, um, certainly in the time that I was at Mercer, um, the change came about actually after I moved to Barnet Waddingham. Um, but yes, it, it, it sort of starts a conversation in your head and really prompts you to think about, well, where do I actually want to go with this? What is, what is it that I actually want to do here? Did you feel as though each time you 
you move between companies, did you become better? I guess the, the part of interviews are a two-way process, so obviously they want to check you out, but it's a big opportunity for you to check them out. Did you find yourself asking better questions, going more in-depth, really understanding what you're getting into? And, and it, as a result of that, is there any advice you'd give to people who are maybe thinking about making a move for the first time? Um, I think I probably did get better at it. I mean, certainly when I interviewed for my, the, the company I'm working for currently, um, I went in with a massive long list of questions and then um, my poor interview, my poor interviewers um, ended up having to spend an extra 20 minutes with me just <laughs> answering all the questions that I had. Um, I think the critical thing that I would say to people is be very clear about your reasons for moving. Understand what it is that's driving the move. Um, and then the kind of questions that you're going to ask will be shaped around that. Um, so if it's, and it's very helpful also, um, I think, to, okay, what, maybe what's what's the best way to put this? Um, it's very helpful to think about, to ask questions about how things progress. So in other words, asking what opportunities people have, um, because I fundamentally, if you're moving a company, it is going to be to find a different opportunity. So I think it is, if you can find, ask questions which let you work out what opportunities there are, um, if you can get as many examples um, of different paths that people have taken, um, that's really helpful because it allows, that's partly that's a way of helping to establish the culture of allowing people to move within the organisation. And it can also obviously help you map um, whether what they're offering actually sits with what it is that you want to do. But I think the, the critical important thing is to be very clear about what it is that you want from the move and to understand what it is that you're trying to get from it. Because it's not an easy process to move and it gets harder, I think, actually, if anything, as you get more senior, um, because the expectations on you are different. And as well as as well as obviously um, having to gain, having to get understanding of new systems and new ways of doing things, you're also having to work out how you can continue to be an actuary with your style as an actuary within a new company culture. So it's not something, it's not a trivial thing to do. And the more, the more that you understand about um, the culture and the support that you can expect as part of the process, um, the better. If if somebody's worked for two companies. I can imagine a potential scenario where they're at, they were at company A for X number of years, they're now at company B, and they might have moments when they think, oh, do you know what, in my previous company, we did things slightly differently, we did this, here's an idea. You've worked at a number of different ones. So do, do you find yourself drawing on different bits of experience and bringing that into your current role? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I think um, I think I probably, um, I, I would hope that um, I'm a more, well-rounded actuary for having gone through that process than for having been exposed to many different ways of doing things, um, to many different actuaries with many different types of thought process, to different company house views, all of these sorts of things. Um, so all of this, if you, if you um, certainly I see it at Mercer for um, about five or six years and, and likewise for Barnett Waddingham, that's, that's quite a long time. It's mm. enough to build it into sort of the DNA of how you operate, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so um, I probably draw on a lot of that without even being consciously aware of it. But yes, I'm absolutely sure that I do. And the interesting thing is that generally speaking, when you join a new company, people are actually quite receptive. If you say, well, have we thought about doing it this way? Or, you know, it's one of the really nice things about joining a new company is that for the first six months, I don't think you can ask, you know, you can't really ask a, a stupid question. <laughs> Yeah, because you're the newbie. Um, so you do definitely get licensed to just say, why do we do things this way? Or, you know, um, um, how, how does this work or things like that? What, what motivates you? Motivates me? Fantastic question. Um, I need quite a lot of stimulus and challenge. Um, so the thing that fundamentally motivates me, I think, is solving problems. Um, and those might be technical problems if you're if you're trying to deal with a particularly difficult piece of work, or it might be solving a problem in a way which um, is good for the client and which the client um, you know finds particularly helpful. So I think my main motivation. I think my main motivation when I'm doing client work fundamentally is. I want my client. Um, I want my client to get value from it. I want my client to to perceive the value of what it is that I've done, and for it to be useful to them, and for it to help them navigate what can often be a very complex minefield, um, which is the sort of working as a pensions trustee. So yeah, I think I think that would that would be it. It's 
on make fundamentally people getting value and use from what I do. And obviously, I'm, I'm not an actor, so I don't understand the ins and outs of you know the re- client relationships and and things like that. But how often do clients really understand the value, or are there times where they just don't? They just you think you're the actually give it to them oh here's, here's a bill um how, how, yeah there's a question in there somewhere <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um so there are some clients who who genuinely appreciate what you do for them um and I've, I've worked i've been again very fortunate to work with some clients um, who are openly appreciative and who will actually go to the trouble of bringing you up to say thank you um for the work that you've done and for helping them deal with something um one client um in particular who i always helped quite a lot um for his corporate accounting um and he always used to bring up at the end of the process just to say thank you and quite honestly that was absolutely brilliant um that would motivate me to carry on <laughs> working um for him for um for sort of for, for the next year um you do of course you do you do get some clients where um they know that there's a process that they have to go through they want to go through it in the most straightforward way that they possibly can um and that you know they want everything to be as minimum compliance as as needs be that's absolutely fine that's a perfectly legitimate way of going about things and it's maybe appropriate for their circumstances and i suppose in that situation um you get the motivation from knowing that even though they may not necessarily obviously appreciate what it is that you're doing for them, you still are helping them. You still are helping them to fulfil their legal obligations and you still are also helping them or helping the ske- or helping to make sure that fundamentally the members are protected appropriately um, and that, you know, that you, you are doing the job um, of, of the scheme actuary, which is making sure that the trustees are able to make the kind of decisions they need to um, to, to, protect, to protect the interests of members. I think there's an answer in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 why why pensions? Not in terms of why did you get into it at the beginning, but what is it about being a pensions actually that's kept you engaged and motivated and everything else for so long? Why why do you enjoy pensions so much? Because I think it's it, it's genuinely the case that um, it's changed enormously. Because um, I I said a moment ago that I need quite a lot of stimulus and challenge, and that's absolutely true. Um, I um, I can get bored. If, you know, I will get bored quite quickly if something doesn't provide that that level of stimulus and challenge. And um, the pensions world looks enormously different, even in the relatively short period of time that I've been working. Um, so it's gone from something where um, a lot of a lot of work. There were exceptions, but a lot of work was um, business as usual valuations, transfer values, accounting work, that kind of thing. We are now in this sometimes hugely complicated situation which has arisen simply through the change in market conditions as a result of um, last year's budget and um, the pensions landscape has shifted enormously there are fresh challenges coming out of that things that we've never really had to think about things which are actually really forcing scheme actuaries to sit back and think about the way that they're working and whether what has gone before which was perfectly appropriate in those circumstances is now necessarily appropriate or how do we need to adapt as a profession to that um and then there's the, the small matter of gene equalization which i imagine one or two people may have heard of um and um also the fact that even if a scheme isn't necessarily in the position where it can buy at now many schemes are wanting to think about how they can get there and all of the work um, that sits around that in terms of perhaps things like member option exercises and things of that nature. So the reason why I've stayed in pensions, the short answer is because it's it's changing. It's always changing. Um, and there is always fresh challenge and fresh areas to explore. You're, you're four months into your new role. So how, how are you finding it at the moment? You're still in that zone where you can ask lots of questions and no such thing as a, a silly question. But have, having gone through changes a few times, what's your... What's your initial feel so far? Um, so I think it's probably fair to say that I found I was expecting to find it difficult because I know from past experience that any time that you move from one company to another, it is difficult because you go to a new company, you don't necessarily even know how to send an email. You can go through this this period of just discombobulation um, yeah. where you don't know what it is you're doing, you don't know how you're doing it, um, you don't know the clients, you don't know the people you're working for. Um, it's Yes, it takes time. Um, but I have to say, um, it's um, I have been really well supported. Um, I think people have gone out of their way to try to look after me, to try to integrate me into the team, um, which, given that I work remotely with quite a lot of my teams, is fantastic and very much appreciated. Um, all of the leadership um, have 
worked, you know, I've really listened um, when I've said, actually, this isn't quite working. Um, can we try things slightly differently? Um, people have really listened and really helped. Um, I've been actually genuinely little surprised um, at how supportive it's been and and how well um, I feel that they've they've listened and tried to look after me. So, yeah, it was it was difficult, but there was there was a safety net and there was support. So, um, four months in now, it feels feels like both a lot less and a lot more. I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing, <laughs> um, but. Um, Four months in, I think I can probably say I feel much more comfortable. Um, really enjoying the work. I think um, there's a, I'm getting a level of a sort of challenge and interest from the kind of things that I'm doing that I've not had in quite some time. Um, it's been a very very steep learning curve, but hopefully now starting to maybe not get my feet fully under the table, but starting to slide my toes under. Yeah, you mentioned before we jumped on the call that you're quite passionate about diversity, equity. And inclusion. Um, could you tell us a bit more about that? I think you mentioned a project you're involved with at Barnet Waddingham, for example, but it's something that you'd like to be doing more with. The the work that I was involved with at Barnet Waddingham was um, it was essentially setting up two things. Um, first of all, an overall and overarching equality, diversity and inclusion strategy. Um, in other words, how does this actually fit um, in terms of the company's overall business and then the second aspect of it which is the more practical part of it is well how do we actually then go about implementing this so the structure that um Barnett Waddingham has which I think is probably quite common across a lot of consultancies is um essentially you have different diversity networks which represent different aspects of diversity which the company um, decided um, that it wanted to focus on and um I think one of the really interesting things there is um People tend to have a very fixed idea, I think, in their minds of what diversity actually means. Um, people tend to focus on the visible when they're talking about diversity. And um, I always hold up myself as, a, as an example here because I'm, I'm a mixed race woman. Um, on the face of it, I, I tick a couple of nice diversity boxes. But if you sort of stop and think about it a little bit and you stop and think about, well, why does diversity matter? And the reason why diversity matters, in, there are many reasons why it matters, but one ma reason is bringing diversity of thought, cognitive diversity, different ways of thinking. And, you know, the question is, do I, as somebody with a, you know, a university educated, middle-class background, um, what diversity of thought do I bring that somebody who has a very different educational background, but might say be white and male bring? Um, so it's about recognizing that diversity sits below the surface as well as, as, well as the visible. And um, quite a lot of that can then think about, well, you know, if you're thinking about it that way, um, then you start asking yourself questions around, well, are we putting any barriers in place unnecessarily for people who might be diverse in some aspects? Um, that could be things like um, neurodiversity, people with ADHD or autism, perhaps, um, people who might have um, other hidden disabilities. Um, and then when you start thinking about it in that way, it starts to broaden out the division definition of diversity and become something that is much easier for people to engage with I think because rather than it becoming something which is purely based on on the, on the visual it becomes something which is much more all-encompassing and and were clients engaged in those conversations or how, how do you because I, I think a lot of people are, are slightly uncomfortable about they kind of want to have the conversation but or a conversation not the conversation but don't really know how to particularly if they haven't got certain experiences um how do you encourage people or create a space for, for those conversations to take place? I mean, it's it's a great point because um, I think one of the really big issues that there is around diversity is people are uncomfortable talking about it because they're worried about causing offence, they're worried about saying the wrong thing, uh, they think it doesn't apply to them. There are many different reasons. And um, I think a lot of what I tried to do um, internally within Barnet Waddingham was to say, it's okay to get it wrong. Um, it's okay to ask these kinds of questions um, as as long as there is willingness to listen to the answer. Um, so I think a lot of it is just about, it's about getting the conversation started. So by setting up networks to um, um, to represent different aspects of diversity, the company is sending a clear signal that it thinks that this is important. Then the networks would set up events where people were encouraged along courage to go along and ask questions. And it was often made very clear, it's a safe space, you can ask questions. Um, you're encouraged to ask questions. Don't be worried about getting it wrong. That's fine, it's fine to get things wrong. And um, once we started looking at how we could take that out into the client space, um, I have I was genuinely quite surprised on 
some occasions just how receptive and how interested clients were in it. Um, so obviously the regulator, um, was it earlier this year now, um, has looked at um, how equality, diversity and inclusion can support the function of trustee boards. And there was also really very interesting consulting, I think, that could be done in that area. And um, I had the opportunity to go out and talk to some clients about this. And it was genuinely very refreshing to see how a group of trustees who you would not necessarily think might be engaged in and interested in it actually were, really wanted to understand more and really wanted to understand how they could make equality, diversity and inclusion, all three of those aspects um, work and how they could make it work for, for their trustee boards. It's I think the key thing about this is um, it's about having an honest upfront conversation. I suppose it's sort of consulting 101, isn't it? It's about going into a room and saying, we are going to be talking about something which potentially might make you a little bit uncomfortable and that's absolutely fine. Um, no, nobody has all of the answers here. Equality, diversity, inclusion, certainly in the context of a pension scheme, is something which is going to be very individual to your scheme. And it's absolutely fine. You know, it may be the case that you feel that this is something you really actively want to engage with. It may be that you feel that there are other more pressing things that you as a trustee board need to focus on at the moment. Both of those are perfectly legitimate, but um, at least let's have a chat about it and make it a conscious decision rather than just assuming that this is something which doesn't apply to you. Can you think of, I don't know if you'll be, I'm asking for, you know, for you to give away company secrets or, or, or private conversations, but if, have you had any really good questions that people have been brave, here's something I don't understand, or here's, because I, I guess when I've been in these kind of conversations, it's not really having a, we don't we sort of avoid the actual topic and it's more, oh, we want to be doing more in this area, more in that area, what can we do? But it's not actually having the having a conversation about a specific issue within it. But do it if you had any good conversations or had any good questions that might help people to understand what they can ask and what they should be thinking about. So I've run quite a few different little workshops and exercises um with um on a on a sort of intercompany level. And um, so I think maybe the best example comes from, it was, it was a workshop I ran and the focus of the workshop was specifically on um, on race. Um, and um, I, um, I was one uh, for this particular network at that particular time, um, I was the sort of the network lead. Um, so it made sense that I was the person um, that would go around various different offices and talk to people about it. And um, it was intentionally set up um, in such a way as to be, it was, we started off just by asking people intentionally slightly provocative questions, um, simply to demonstrate that there wasn't, you know, there was there was not going to be a wrong answer. It was absolutely fine to say all of these things. And um, I think one of the most interesting questions I got asked was, um, this is a quite a common, it's quite a common question for me to be asked where I'm from. Um, and in a sort of, in a kind of social setting or with, with work colleagues, for instance, and things like that, um, you might quite often, because, you know, I sound English, I don't look, <laughs> I don't look English because I'm half Korean. Um, and I think people are often just curious and it's a sort of natural human impulse to want to understand where somebody's from, what their background is, that kind of thing. Um, so I get asked a lot, where are you from? Um, and um, I have always found that to be quite an intrusive question and I don't particularly like being asked it. And I, I do recognise that in a social situation that there's no harm bent at all and it's purely driven just out of, um, it's purely driven out of curiosity perhaps, or just a desire to get to know me better. It's absolutely fine, but I still don't like the question. Um, and the reason I don't like the question is because um, when I was small growing up in a relatively small village in Scotland, you know, we, we stuck out like sore thumbs because we were not white. And so for me being, for, for me as a, um, again, as a, as a six, seven, eight, nine year old being asked where I was from, um, and the attitude that came with being asked where I was from, it was always about it was always reinforcing separation, um, and it was always done in a way which just made you feel uncomfortable, even if that wasn't necessarily the intention. And um, I think, yes, I think um, it's this sort of this constant interrogation. So quite often I will deflect the question by saying, "Well, I'm I was born in London," and then people will either accept that that's the answer mm. um or they'll actually sort of sort of start to dig a hole for themselves yeah. um and you know it's like basically say, what's your ethnicity yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um and i think the question that somebody said was i, I just don't understand why because when i said I, I said up front this is a, this is a question i don't like being asked um so quite a few people said 
we genuinely don't understand why um, because we don't see anything wrong with it. Can you explain why? Um, and sort of the fact that um, I, I answered and was able to articulate why, and they actually listened and at the end of it said, it would never even have occurred to us to think about it that way. And all that did, all that example shows is that sometimes it just needs a perspective shift mm. and that if you spend a moment or two in somebody else's shoes, to coin a phrase, um, it can give you a completely different viewpoint on why what to you might seem a perfectly innocent question to somebody else can actually have a loaded historical context that you might not be aware of. So I think that was, um, yeah, um, it's a little thing. Um, but when you're asked it constantly um, and when it's been almost weaponized against you in the past, it can actually seem like quite a big one. Yeah, yeah. I can relate to some of, I've certainly been there where I'm asked where I'm from and no, no, where, where are your parents from? And often my older generation of people, it tends to happen, but it's it's infrequent. It doesn't, ha I, it doesn't happen to me that much, but I can certainly can certainly relate to it but yeah I've, I've even sitting there and listening to you saying that I've, that's the kind of conversation that I think needs to needs to happen more and I feel nervous about it I'm I'm mixed race but I don't have these kind of conversations ever and I'm kind of arms across the chest closing up kind of thing even working out where I'm going next with this sentence um for example but it I mean thanks for sharing that because it, it, it was it's I want to hear more of that and I think that that kind of conversation needs to be more accessible and it feels like we're a long way from it but there does seem to be you know most companies are aware that it's an issue and, and, and that things that need to be done it's just how to actually do it is is maybe the tricky bit. So and I mean passion is engaging with this and is trying to do something about it and it's you know i know it's been quite a controversial process and certainly not everybody agrees with what they've done but nevertheless they are trying they are recognizing that it's important and um i mean one of the reasons why i thought this whole podcast series was such a great idea was because um as a profession we do need to diversify um so and we are we are doing that we are starting to do that but the role of an actuary and the kind of work that we do over the next 10, 20, 30 years is going to change. It's going to change quite significantly. And the kind of people who we are going to be working with are going to change too. Um, the demographic is going to change. And we want the profession to reflect that demographic because the importance of having people ref who reflect your client's point of view as part of your team or people who understand the other side of the fence, or however it is that you want to phrase it, it's really important. Um, there is so many, there is so much value to having a perspective which is different from the conventional norm, for want of a better phrase, in there. And I think one of the other points to make as well is that um, people always think of diversity initiatives as benefiting a particular demographic who have those diverse characteristics. And again, it's not necessarily the case. Um, I think my favourite example of this is something called the dropped curb or the cut curb effect. And um, everybody's seen this. So it's, it's common design in pavements that you'll see a dip in the pavement and that's to allow for wheelchair access. But if you think about that dip, if you've ever been, I don't know, pushing a pram or pulling a wheelie bin or pulling a suitcase or something like that, everybody has made use of them. And that's a really simple but nice example of how something which was brought in to benefit one particular demographic has actually benefited everybody. And I think this is where the importance of the, the equality and the inclusion words in the, the equality, diversity and inclusion equation um, becomes so important because it's through inclusive practices um, that you can achieve equality, I actually prefer the word equity to equality, but that's a separate issue. But um, but by using these processes, you can make things better for everybody, not just not just a specific group of people. Yeah. And again, it's it's I think it's something that companies are really starting to appreciate and to understand a bit more. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I know you said it earlier, but diversity of thought is something that's important as well. I've, I've seen companies where, you know, the, the, the group of people at the top they might not necessarily look the same or, or 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 be the same gender, but you can spot the next one to join that group because of how they act and how they think yeah, about indeed, things yeah. and that kind of thing. You're just saying, oh, okay, there's another person, and if someone does think about things a bit differently, then it's harder for them to get in to get in that room. Yeah, things like educational background or even socioeconomic background are, are really important. I think they tend to get overlooked a little bit in the diversity conversation, but um. One of the reasons why the I think the apprenticeship scheme is brilliant is because 
um, it's actually trying to address that. It's drawing in people from the prof- into the profession who wouldn't necessarily um, have done so. How do you feel? I'll ask you. I mean, we don't have to leave this in, but I'm I'm a recruiter. So, how do you feel about when you see? I don't know if a company wants to hire ten people and they're really conscious of diversity and they're deliberately trying to hire X number of people from a certain category, whether it's gender, whether it's race or whatever it is. Because um, I'm not sure where I sit with that. Because on one hand, it's great. You've got to do something. It's got to start with with hiring. But on the other hand, I wouldn't want to be treated differently, whether it's positively or negatively in yeah. an interview process. I wouldn't like to feel like I've got that job because I tick a box um, yeah. and someone else who didn't tick that box. How do you feel about that? Um, instead, I think... I think my attitude would be rather, I think you, I think the debt should be widened. So, for instance, it's quite common practice for an assessment centre, you might invite along, I don't know, six or seven candidates perhaps, um, and they will have been drawn from a shortlist. So I think my challenge would be, instead of thinking about, um, instead of, uh, think about widening your net. So the challenge actually is perhaps, it's not just to applicants, but it's also perhaps to recruiters as well. So it's like, Yes, send us the CVs of the people who you think are good, but at the same time, we're actually going to hold an assessment centre, which is bigger. Um, so let's say we're going to hold two assessment centres, we're going to interview twice the number of people, and we want to make sure that there is as diverse a range of people there. So in other words, um, you're not, how can you put it? You're essentially just broadening out your recruitment process so that you try to funnel more people through your recruitment Um mm. And if that means that you have to give up a bit more time on the company side to recruit more people, it's more HR involvement to make sure that everybody's assessed um, in a way which is appropriate and fair, I think so be it. Um, I think that's that way. If you're basically saying, actually, we're seeing more people and more good people and we're trying to get more people from a diverse range of backgrounds, then that can only be a positive. And that then avoids the issue of somebody saying, well, I was only recruited because I happened to fit a particular box. In other words, you're just saying, we've got a really nice range of people here. We're going to choose the ones who we think are the best. Caveat to that is that you need to make sure that there is as much unconscious bias removed from your recruitment processes as you possibly can, because it is very easy for that to slip in without it, without people realising it. So the challenge there for the companies, I guess, is to make sure that there is appropriate training for recruitment managers, that their HR processes are robust to make sure that people are assessed in a way which is fair, all of those kinds of things. Again, we can cut this up one out if you like, but since we're having this conversation, I'm really interested in your in your views on this. Um, when companies do, you know, put a spotlight on diversity, they they implement different practices around their hiring or whatever it is they're doing. To what extent are they doing it because they really understand the benefit and they're trying to make themselves a better company versus companies wanting to be seen to do the right things because it's trending yes you, you have to be realistic about it in some cases they're doing it because they think it's the right thing to do and they haven't stopped to think properly about how it integrates into um, into the company as a whole um i mean and to be honest the answer of that actually answering that question how does it integrate into the company as a whole that's a really difficult question because you can recruit a diverse group of people but if you don't have the right process in place if you don't have a, an appropriately inclusive environment it's it's almost worse than useless because you're essentially just going to um, recruit a group of people who actually aren't able to function to the best of their ability. But that, that's by the way. Yeah, and to be fair, when I asked the question, I had sort of mm. moved away from. I wasn't even thinking about actuarial at that point. I was just thinking companies in general. Mm. I just meant the country. I didn't mean specific yeah. actuarial firms. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, um, no. I mean, it is very frustrating when you see it happening for the wrong reasons. Because when it happens for the wrong reasons, it's actually useless. Um, and I mean, it's. I actually think diversity without the appropriate equity and inclusion sitting behind it is 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 a negative thing, um, because all it means is that you bring in people um, who you're not necessarily setting them up to fail, but you're not taking the time to understand what they need to succeed, um, and it then just reinforces a sort of them and ours attitude. It can reinforce perhaps negative stereotypes about those kind of individuals or those characteristics, all of that kind of thing. So it really does need to be properly thought about. And it's incredibly frustrating when you see these sort of tick box exercises. Yes, we've recruited, I don't know, um, five women this year and two disabled people. And you go, yeah, so what? <laughs> what have you done to actually integrate them in into the organisation? Well, thank, thanks for that, 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 that section. I 
you can probably tell I'm still a bit shifty in my chair because I'm <laughs> going outside of my comfort zone a bit but um, I was really interested in your thoughts and yeah I feel like I've learned a lot there myself so thank you for for I'm that um we let's move towards my three questions that i'd like to end on if if you've got mm-hmm. another five minutes are we okay for time of course yes but yep the first one is what advice would you give to somebody just starting their career in pensions today i think it's the same advice that i would give almost anybody starting out a new career um and that is to go in with a growth mindset um to be open to learning because think we've touched on it earlier when we talked uh, or just part of this conversation which is that um the pensions landscape is shifting all the time there is more opportunity now to get involved in incredibly interesting projects very different types of projects from the really technical to the much more sort of consultancy or advice driven um there is tremendous opportunity um available at the moment so my advice for anybody joining the pensions profession now would be to go in with as open a mindset as possible um, and to try to get as much experience as possible because this is a really interesting time to be doing it. Excellent. Question number two is what does the future look like for UK pensions actuaries and what role do people at your level have to play in that? So this is this is such an interesting question, isn't it? Because um, if you'd asked me this question maybe two or three years ago, um, I would be giving a very different answer. And um, the answer I give right now is um, I'm actually not sure. <laughs> because if anything that has been demonstrated over the past sort of year or so, um, it is that things are going to happen which we cannot predict. Um, so, for instance, um, if you'd asked me this question two or three years ago, would I have said that you'd be seeing this um, enormous surge in activity towards buyout, for instance? I don't think anybody would have predicted that. Um, and it's a really fundamental shift in the pensions landscape. It's it's changing the way that we need to do things and the way that we need to think about things. So in terms, I suppose, if you look very long term, um, what's, what's going to happen in terms of pensions? Fundamentally, most deferred benefit schemes are heading towards their end game um but there's a huge amount of work required to get them there um it's just that the shape of the work has changed perhaps from what we were expecting it to so the very longer term that starts to look at things like well defined contribution is that the answer um i think the jury's out on that one is it going to be the case that um the collective um defined contribution schemes is that going to be the way forward and again i think the jury's out on it but it's a very interesting development to see to see how that potentially might develop. What other pension vehicles are going to appear? Um, Because I think certainly as we stand at the moment, um, I I think there is such poor understanding um, within the public generally about pensions, about how much you need to save for retirement and how that works. I think a lot of what's going to happen in the future is actually going to be about how do we fill that gap, both from an educational perspective and what products do we need to provide as a profession to make sure that people actually can achieve um, retirement savings in a way which is pragmatic and appropriate for people's financial circumstances at this point in time? Because we're no longer in the kind of economic climate where being able to save for a pension and to expect that people will be willing to do that and not touch a pot of money for 40 or 50 years, in many cases, that's simply not realistic. So people don't save. Um, and sort of understanding the answer to that question, I think, is a really key one for how the actuarial profession needs to develop um, in the future. And for the for the people at my level, the sort of um, um, how what will our contribution be? So certainly in the short sort of the shorter to medium term, perhaps even slightly longer term, I guess it's managing the schemes down to buyout, managing the defined benefit schemes successfully to their end game, and the shape that that's going to take is going to be, I think increasingly individualised? Is it the case that some schemes may decide it's absolutely appropriate for them to run on? Some schemes may choose to buy out. There may be other solutions available as well. So making sure, I suppose, it's continuing to do the job that we are now to help clients find the solution that is right for their circumstances. And there's just so much uniqueness about every single client's situation. (laughs) There's one thing I've taken from 15 or 16 years is that every client is unique and the solution for them needs to look unique. And longer term than that, I really don't know. I'm fascinated to find out how the role of um, a pensions actuary is actually going to develop over the next sort of 20 to 30 years. It's very interesting. Um, I think we have a huge amount to offer. I think the skill sets that we have, um, the ability to marry the kind of really deep financial understanding um, and, as I said right at the start, the ability to explain the complex in a way which is simple and to help people navigate complexity. I think these are all 
really important skills. I think we can apply them. Um, I just don't know 100% yet exactly in what way we are going to be applying them in the longer term. And my final question is, what are you looking forward to in the next 12 months? And that can be work-wise, personal, or one of each. Um, so on the personal level, um, I guess the thing I'm most looking forward to is going on honeymoon. Oh, congratulations. I, didn't know. I don't actually know where I'm going on honeymoon yet, but um, <laughs> I'm going on honeymoon at some point next year. So really looking forward to that. Um, on on the professional level, I think having just relatively recently joined a new company, I think the thing I'm most looking forward to is developing relationships, um, sort of the key relationships with my clients. Um, and it's always, a, it's always, it's part of the job that I really enjoy when you actually get to meet people for the first time, when you get to find out a little bit about what makes them tick on a personal level, when you sort of spend some time with them just observing all of the interactions and all of the different relationships that go on in the room. Um, I think that's what I'm most looking forward to, just getting to know my clients properly um, and really starting to build that sort of trusted advisor um, relationship with them. Well, thank you so much and and for spending the extra time because I know we've ran over as well, but it's been such a useful conversation for me and and hopefully everyone that's that's listening and um, if anybody wants to get in touch are you happy for them to do so perhaps via linkedin more than happy to do so yes via linkedin yes fantastic well um yeah once again thank you so much um for for, for sharing everything and um i wish you all the best thanks very much james really enjoyed i uh, really enjoyed it thanks very much again for um for inviting me on thanks for listening to this episode of actuarial people Please don't forget to subscribe and consider leaving a review. If you have any questions or feedback or any suggestions for future guests, please contact me on info at actuarialpeople.com. This podcast is sponsored by my recruitment company, Turner Perkins, and you can contact me there at james.turner at turnerperkins.com. Hope to see you again.